Welcome back to Commodity Conversations. This week we have a Twitter celebrity on board, Oscar Pierce, aka Oscar the Farmer. You may have read about him in a newspaper. He's been talking a lot recently at various conferences about the future of farming from an environmental and climate point of view. So we thought we'll get him on, have a chat about climate change, environmental stewardship, and uh, trying to get some money out of the uh, climate change. Before we jump in there, just want to say a big thank you to one of our supporters, LiveCore. We're currently doing a project on behalf of LiveCore into looking at the value of the live sheep export trade. Obviously, we've done a lot of work on this in the past, but we're actually looking at you know what kind of impact a ban would have on the live sheep trade uh, to people involved in the industry, but also the wider industry. So we are conducting a, a survey at the moment. Uh, we'd appreciate if you are involved in that industry or you're allied to that industry. Uh, to just to fill in the details on our website, uh, you'll be able to find that easily on our website. And we've sent a few emails over the last couple of days. So without further ado, uh, we'll just jump straight into it with Oscar. Well, I want to introduce you all to Oscar Pierce, also known as Oscar the Farmer. Uh, Oscar is a multi-generational farmer from Moree in New South Wales. If you're on Twitter, he doesn't really need an introduction. He goes by the handle Oscar the Farmer. He's got a big experience out with agriculture, was a policy officer for a number of different organisations uh, prior to going back to the farm. Uh, as I said, he's in Moree. Uh, they say that Australia is a lucky country, but Moree seems to be the unlucky country over the last couple of years. Oscar is really... A big proponent of of climate change and uh, I guess biodiversity, but probably more less less of an evangelical look at it, but more of a almost an economic background looking at uh, environmentalism and climate change. So we thought it was a good idea to get Oscar on, have a chat with him about climate change, um, environmentalism, and uh, what the industry should be doing. I guess there'll be a lot of people listening to this who agree with climate change is man-made. There'll be some that that don't agree with it. Uh, For the purposes of this podcast, let's just say the scientists say it's real. uh, The general community say it's real. So we'll just go ahead with, you know, on the the understanding that we'll we'll call climate change for this purpose real thing and and human-induced. So, Oscar, hello. Thanks. Thanks for coming along and having a chat. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, as you said, pretty grim times at Moray here. We're in the worst drought on record and um, had a couple of fairly rough seasons before then. So prognosis is pretty bleak for our region at the moment, but uh, nothing that an unexpected or unpredicted few inches of rain wouldn't uh, wouldn't solve. Well, I guess what they say, you know, every day of dry is a day closer to the rain. So climate change, I guess, has been uh, getting a bit of more coverage in agriculture in the in the last probably maybe two or three years. And, you know, we've seen groups like uh, uh, Farmers for Climate Action, uh, but also read an article in the, I think it was The Guardian the other day, which was highlighting the, I think it was the AFI or Australian Farm Institute, a conference that was held in June, which was, you know, mentioning that companies like, well, fairly big companies like AACO and the NFF were all agreeing that climate change was was a real thing. And, and is that something you're feeling yourself from, you know, from the farm level and, and your, your counterparts in the industry? Look, it's, it's you, you, in the introduction, you said that uh, scientists acknowledge that human-induced climate change is real. Um, the important thing for us as agribusiness managers is to understand that increasingly the agribusiness community as a whole is also now recognising that. So, you know, the fundamental fact is our 
capital investments, you know, our land, the value of our land is heavily influenced by the return on investment. And the return on investment in agriculture is being impacted by climate change. So, you know, you can go back to that 2017 report from the CSIRO that showed how Australian wheat yields are struggling to maintain productivity gain while dealing with climate change. There's other reports in other sectors that come forward and shown that. Um, the reality is that the bottom line, and specifically the ROI, of a lot of agricultural land is being influenced by climate change. And so banks uh, in particular, but the whole range of agribusiness investment uh, community is now increasingly looking at it. So that was something clear coming out of the AFI conference that this is no longer a debate about the science. Um, it is about how that science translates into economic returns and how that can potentially change capital values of agricultural land. Uh, and in some cases, it'll be a positive. You know, there's parts of the world and parts of Australia that are going to see an increase in productivity and profitability uh, as a result of agriculture uh, being impacted by these increased levels of CO2, increased levels of uh, heat at certain times, increased rainfall. Um, unfortunately, for the majority of Australia, we're already, you know, we started in one of the most variable climates in the world. And in the last couple of hundred years, as we've increased CO2 levels globally by over 25%, um, you know, gone from under 300 parts to over 415 now. Um, that increase in CO2 is driving an increasing variability in the climate, and that is translating directly into the bottom line. So, I mean, that's the fundamental argument now. That's where the debates are. Um, so, it's so, about. So, I guess you know, I ain't no scientist, but my my basic basic knowledge of of biology, you know, more CO2, more plant growth. So it's an yep, issue for Australia, but are we going to see, you know, overall holistically across the world, is thing, are things going to be better for yeah, production? It's, it's been very clearly identified, the fertiliser effect of CO2, you know, and specifically in terms of increases water use efficiency. And, you know, there have been various studies that show, you know, globally the world photosynthetic activity is increasing. The world is in some metrics greening. So, yes, that is known. It's also been very clearly quantified. And people like, Professor Graham Harmer, who was uh, speaking at the Australian Summer Grains Conference uh, last week, that quantitative aspect of the fertilizer effect of CO2 is taken into account and then run through these models uh, that show that the net impact, as I said, in some areas will be positive. But for most of Australia, yeah, we're, we're looking at seeing poorer returns more often. And, and you've got to put this, it's all about probability math. So for a farmer looking at this, you can go and jump online and see any number of tools that will give you these, you know, potentially quite bleak forecasts. What you need to do, though, really is understand that it's about shifting probabilities of, say, extreme events, of larger, larger than normal rainfall events, or longer periods of dry, or more extreme heat temperatures at, say, flowering, which is really important for summer crops. Um, it's just increasing that probability. And it might only be taking it from, say, a 0.35 probability uh, up to a 0.55. But that could have a massive impact on your 10-year average profitability or your production. So it's all about the probability math. It doesn't mean that every year is going to get worse between now and 2030 or now and 2050. But what it does mean is that the probability of these anomalous events occurring is, is going up. And that's just a reality. And for us as agribusiness managers, we have to work out how can we adapt to that 
as the probabilities get worse, what are our business strategies that we have to do to change to respond to that? I mean, and look, in terms of global emissions, obviously some people are, are really focusing on the fact that they would like to see global emissions reduced because for every tonne of CO2 that's put out into the atmosphere, it's exacerbating these problems and increasing that probability that we're going to have these anomalous events that reduce our profitability. So, I mean, it, ultimately, though, the debate is about science. As far as I'm concerned, there's, there's still science being, work being done, but it's just about the business. You know, the capital that you put in and the ROI that you get out of that capital needs to be put in the best places. And Australian agriculture is facing this threat that we are not going to be as good a place to park, to park capital as we were in the past. It's just a simple scientific reality translated into business terms. So let's talk about the business side of it then. Uh, I always like to throw in some experience from the UK into every podcast. Uh, back in back in UK and Europe, uh, farmers get get some money towards, uh, I guess, biodiversity. You know, keeping the hedge grows pretty and whatnot. We don't get anything of that in Australia. And I, and I, I think I read something from you, like a, it might be an article in the Stock and Land uh, a couple of months ago about effectively. Uh, looking for, for the public to effectively take on some of that burden, which farmers, farmers are already doing a lot of biodiversity just through their own business. And they're already, I guess, all farmers in Australia are doing some form of sequestration of carbon just through their normal farming practices. But what I found quite interesting, and I'm not an environmentalist, um, but I did find your article interesting in that a lot of it was about, well, how do we get some, some dollars out of those people who want biodiversity you know, I guess the question is, you know, or your point was they need to step up to the plate and actually, you know, give us some cash. So, so what, yeah. what are points around that? Well, look, I mean, we, we had a, a, a meeting recently. We had about 150 farmers from across northwest New South Wales meeting in Moray, and uh, we're talking about native vegetation laws. And there's obviously, you know, a quarter century legacy of, of that legislation in place in New South Wales and Queensland, but it's true around the country that um, laws that were aiming to conserve or protect biodiversity have been put in place and that's created restrictions on what farmers can do. Now in certain parts of the country, and ours is a classic example, there's a huge capital gain that can be realised by converting country from say lightly scrubbed grazing country, turning that into cropping country or even irrigation country, you're going to have a big increase in your returns and also a very big increase in your capital, uh, the value of your capital. So land could more than quadruple in price uh, when you do that. But government legislation at the state and federal level restricts you from doing that. Now, the question of how do you how do you look at that biodiversity that you have on your farm and trans community and why and how should they compensate us or why and how they, should they give us an incentive program um, to, to do more? They're the really two big key questions. And there's, there's almost a a spectrum of attitudes. So, you know, look, I was talking to a very conservative, certainly not a farmer who I'd call an environmentalist, a very conservative farmer. He was saying, listen, it's pretty simple. From my point of view, if government tells me I can't use, you know, 50 hectares or a thousand hectares, and if I can't use that in the way I want to, to optimize my profitability, um, then the government should compensate me. So if I could make um, a, a $330 a hectare average profit out of my grazing country, 
every hectare that I'm not allowed to clear that actually costs me money to maintain, well, they should be paying me that three thirty dollars every uh, year. That makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, if then you, you, you can't use the resource that you've got available, you paid for, that you're probably paying it, rates for as well. Exactly. And, exactly. Yep. Simple opportunity cost calculation, <laughs> bang done. Very easy. You, you then move into other areas where you go, okay, well, what about um, we put a, a dollar value on the ecosystem services on farm and just say, right, well, you have this particular area of this ecological community. It's in this state and um, we value that because, say, it's on a threatened ecological community listing by the federal government and the state government's rule that you can't touch it. It's been protected. Uh, if, if, if that has a value in some sort of a, a trading mechanism, um, which could be set up at a state level. In New South Wales, we've got the Biodiversity Conservation Trust, and that's essentially what it does. Um, or a, uh, a federal system, and there's a lot of political debate about that, both within the Craig Review of the EPBC and also uh, the previous Ag Minister, David Littleproud's election commitment for a $30 million fund um, to do a pilot on this sort of stuff. So that's, that's another element of the spectrum. Um, but the problem with that is that that goes to the next level of the spectrum, which is where a lot of environment groups are focusing on, which is, no, no, we don't want to compensate you for what's already locked up by laws. We want you to simply be paid on what additionality you create. Okay, so if you've got two lovely high biodiversity areas, um, if you link them with, say, a biodiversity corridor, um, and that's an optional thing. You'd have to plant it and fence it off, and, you know, manage the pests and weeds on there. Then we will party you. You can tender. We will pay you to do that additional action. So you've got some schemes that count what you are doing now and other schemes that focus purely on the additionality. So if, you're, then, looking, if you're looking at additionality then, effectively, if I've done nothing in the last 40 years, for argument's sake, just picking a number out of the, the hat there, then I've got more opportunity to earn money from a scheme like that than somebody exactly. who has been focused on biodiversity for the last more, however long. And that's the thing, that there's a clearly a perverse outcome if you focus on additionality, because if you ignore the assets that are there and being well-managed out of the farmer's own pocket, then you're creating a very clear disincentive for that farmer to keep doing what he's been doing. And the second thing you, you, you're doing is creating a, a, a essentially an incentive for the bad lad managers over the last few decades to suddenly you know, fix things up, that's great, but it's pretty inequitable and it could also create some really unintentional consequences where you might get low-value land getting thrown into low-value con low conservation work um, and that's not actually dealing with the priorities for that landscape or for even, you know, even for the, the national, uh, the federal or state government. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues to my mind when it comes to this additionality question because of it's A, inequitous, and B, it doesn't necessarily meet the, the priorities and targets of governments and ecologists. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of debate in that current space, um, and I'm pretty pessimistic at the moment looking at some of the systems that are in place because that BTT in New South Wales does a bit of both, but the predominant payment system is for additionality. Um, and essentially what you're doing is locking up your land for a very long time for a relatively short time period of income um, and as I said it's not necessarily rewarding people that have done the right thing in the past or, or have optimised the management of their country in the past so 
yeah, issues there. I guess then there's the, the fourth sort of category, which is um, almost looking at a farm in a life cycle analysis basis. So you, you're looking at the whole net income. And that's another really worrying one to me because, you know, there's some, some pretty ardent green uh, policy voices here who, who are essentially saying that um, if you look at the net uh, biodiversity impact of agriculture, then it's, it's negative and therefore it's not a question of farmers being paid for their biodiversity. In fact, we should be paying the government essentially a, a tax for, for the ecological damage that we do. So there are risks in this whole policy debate that in some cases, what we see as best agricultural practices that you know optimise soil productivity and uh, you know create the best ag land performance might actually be seen on some under some systems as being a negative biodiversity scoring mechanism that creates a, a liability for us financially if biodiversity ecosystem services become a, a, a trading market. So yeah, it's it's there's there's risks in this. It's not just a, a an easy check written to a farmer sort of style scenario. And it's all about the policies, really. It's all about the policies that, that and the principles that come up with. Um, and unfortunately, we're still in Australia. As you say, in Europe, different systems, in my mind, much better, much more advanced. But in Australia, we're still talking about these fundamental questions. And, and I'm fairly concerned about the way that things are going uh, in general. So I think I've got a few questions for you. You, you. you know more about this than I do. <clears throat> so in terms of... You know, in terms of who pays for the likes of of these type of let's say it's called policies or schemes, uh, is it the general public through through the normal taxes? Is it you know come from the taxpayers' money, or does it come from you know companies you know who are able to pay money back down the chain from the consumers who are willing to pay for for these sort of uh, biodiversity or carbon sequestration or whatever sort of scheme it is. So, so I guess where does the money come from? And secondly, uh, like I'm a cynic, I guess at times, I always wonder, you know, when you when you survey consumers for their viewpoints, their viewpoints with what they actually do is not necessarily always aligned. So, you know, quite often you would ask somebody, oh, "Do you use caged eggs?" And say, "No, I use free range." But in reality they still buy caged eggs etc so there's still there's still a large portion of society that a doesn't really care enough to pay extra for it or um, they just or, or they're in, unable to pay extra for for these type of of products that are you know carbon yeah. conscious or biosecurity more sorry a biodiverse sort of products so you're always going to have a bit of a difficulty getting, you know, the average taxpayer in in the Broadmeadows or wherever it is in Australia to say, well, I'm going to pay, be paying more taxes to subsidise farmers. Then it's, in reality, that's maybe not the right word to say subsidising farmers, but subsidising environmental work. So I guess, look, where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, look, in, in the European model where environmental incentive payments are made as part of their CAP, Common Agricultural Practice, um, you know, yeah, it is straight out um, a taxpayer thing. I mean, the money goes to Brussels from the uh, European Union taxpayer and, and goes directly to farmers. Which is going to be a really interesting one. one in about six months' time when uh, <laughs> the, 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 the cap payments may, may fall short to, to farmers in yeah. the UK. 
Exactly, exactly. So, you know, look, that's one model. Um, why that model in Australia? The, the, the main argument that I hear from the grassroots is a very simple one. Um, and uh, an opinion leader in agriculture up in Queensland, a guy called Tom Marland, wrote a very solid piece on this recently where uh, he quoted some work that basically said, well, look, look, how much carbon has been sequestered in the ag sector in an involuntary, essentially, way um, over the last 25 years? And, you know, this comes about since Cabinet Papers, which showed that during the Howard government, the coalition federal government um, actively set this system up to essentially get free carbon out of the ag sector through land management. Um, and conservative politicians just have failed to deal with that inequity for the last two and a half decades. But let's take that inequity, let's cost it out, put a $40 price on carbon and, and, and what does it come up with? And the answer, depending on your methodology, is in the thousands of billions up to, you know, one and a bit trillion dollars that the ag sector is owed by the general community, by the Australian government, essentially, because these state biodiversity conservation mechanisms were actually federal instruments to create a carbon sink. So if you accept all of those arguments, then you could say, well, look, we as an ag community are already owed about a trillion dollars. So us asking for $10 billion a year for direct incentives to compensate us for that, but also to give you a better environmental outcome, that's a fair enough thing. So sorry, taxpayers, you've had 25 years of freebies. Now is the time for that you know, liability to be fulfilled. Um, okay, so that's one argument. And there's a lot of political discussion about that amongst state farmer organisations and AFF. Um, and it's a pretty good argument. I, I can't see too many holes in it. Um, and there may even be, you know, potential legal challenges down the track that might actually sort of formulate that, in which case there'll become a very pressing need for government to address it. Uh, you, you talked about market-based incentives and market-based systems. Um, like you, I'm very sceptical that the consumer, when surveyed, says X, and when they reach into their hip pocket, they do Y. And, you know, I reckon... In, the X to Y ratio is probably 10 to 1. Say 40% of people will say, yeah, yeah, I'd pay 10% more for an uh, environmentally certified product. And when they reach the supermarket, they compare the price of the different options, they walk past the certified stuff, and they, they save their 10%. Maybe 4% of people actually do pay that extra 10%. So you're not expanding your industry. You're not increasing your, your share of consumer uh, spending. Um, in any significant way under any of those environmentally accredited uh, branding systems, in my view. Now, there are some I, where I guess, works. I guess there are ways of doing it. You know, Coles, you know, a couple of years ago, all of a sudden branded that all their meat was HGP-free, as if being HGP-free was some form of positive. Yeah. So all it takes a supermarket to say, you know, we're biodiverse lamb, biodiverse cattle or, or whatever it may be. Yep. And uh, then suddenly everyone else has to do it. Uh, well, whether, and whether, whether any benefit flows back down the chain to the farmer is, is, is another question for another day. Exactly. And I think the key thing there is in those sort of systems is the amount that the consumers are prepared to pay that then translates to an increase in farm gate price. Is that commensurate or proportionate to the expenses that farmers have to do to meet 
consumer and public expectations on environmental management. So if consumers are prepared to pay a little bit more, that turns into a very small amount at farm gate. Is that enough to fund the kind of environmental activities and management systems that consumers expect when they pay their 10 or 15% more? And I've got to be honest, I'm pretty sceptical about that. Now, those that have these supply chains and see them work, great. But can we expect that to be 95% of the Australian domestic retail food market? Yeah, I'm pretty sceptical about that. So the total quantities of funds that are required compared to the needs and the expenditures on farm, it just doesn't match up. So there is a place for that. I think we can all acknowledge that there are commercial niches that that makes sense. No, I, think, I think that's clear, though, that it's definitely a niche. There's always going to be, you know, whichever sort of branded product yeah. is organic this or free range or yeah, blah, 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 exactly. blah. You know I mean. Exactly. And a lot of people buy organic on that assumption that they're actually creating a better environmental outcome anyway. So there's a fair bit of noise in what exactly is the market signal there. Some people buy organics not because they think it's better for their own health or, you know, you know, for the, for the chance of their children getting exposed to glyphosate or something like that. What they're really buying is, in some cases, they think they're already buying an environmental certification production system. So, yeah, identifying what those key price points are for consumers is something that the ag industry hasn't done very well. But you can understand why, because when it has been done, realistically, in the last 20 years, it's shown to be a a niche that not, certainly not the majority of consumers will will be prepared to pay a significant amount extra for. Um, So, look, I mean, they're they're the sort of the two extreme ends. The the third thing, and this is really the flavour of the month in the last year or so, has been this idea of, creating biodiversity markets. So um, looking at looking at the value of biodiversity that is taken out by certain activities um, and putting a, a metricy across that, um, and, and it needs to be looking at a whole bunch of things. It's not just vegetation. It's also looking at the animals uh, on, on those particular areas, ecosystems as a whole. And that gets really complicated really quickly because any life science, any biodiversity studies... Yeah, yeah it's, it's very hard to get a standard that matches every single land type across the country and then compares like from like so that you can trade and interchange like you would say a water license being yeah, traded up and down I can tell you that's not going to work. You know, I, it's going to be different. <clears throat> I, I, um, I actually did a module at uni on carbon trading back in 2013, which was when I think the carbon trading scheme was all, all the go. And I think that was during the Gillard era. And that was relatively easy because you had a set product which was effectively tons of carbon or carbon credits. So it was something that was easily measurable. But if you have a biodiversity, I don't really see how it can be overly measured. You know, I've got eight koalas in this hectare. You know, what does that mean? How, how can somebody who is in... Geneva trade on that, for instance, whereas you can with with a measurable thing like carbon. Whereas I think measuring biodiversity, like you said, it becomes so difficult because every every ten hectares on a farm could be, you know, unique. And this is the problem. I mean, and and you've also got to overlay. And you know, I'll, I'll join you in outlining some of the problems, but I think later come into some of the some of the real opportunities here. But yeah, I mean. Take our scenario in, in New South Wales. Um, if I want to 
go out and improve my country. So my big issue is taking out isolated paddock trees um, in our cropping areas so that we can use some more efficient equipment and you know get better returns that way. So I take out trees to do that. I've had the LLS on, on farm for about, I think we've had nine full-time equivalent days of ecologists and, and the uh, local land services staff coming out, assessing what needs to be removed, giving me options there, actually telling me certain parts they prefer we didn't and actually we should enhance. So we've worked out offset systems all in line with the state legislation. That's wonderful. That's good. We actually do have a net environmental benefit from our plans. Um, we're yet to finalise the certification, but yep, good, good for the environment, good for me. Okay, that's all good. What happens when I take that system and um, I want to input that data into a federal biodiversity system uh, where it's those you know activities and existing stuff or, or additionality is credited I mean right now LLS keeps all its information between me and LLS it's all private um, the issues for farmers you know where, where we've seen say animal activists invading farms a lot of that information came from public data sets I've got the same concerns about public data sets of my farm held by government agencies, where right now it's private, but for a federal trading system to work, that information would have to be released by the local land services. Now, I might decide it's worth it, but what happens if you know nine out of 10 of my neighbors don't? That system's gonna lack the data integrity to, to allow proper you know prioritization policy uh, to be set and therefore the right dollars to be put in the right place. So yeah, typically- we've got a whole heap of issues of privacy that are there, got a whole heap of issues. I mean, one, one debate from ecologists on this is that they reckon it would cost several billion dollars just to get enough boots on the ground because you can't use a really coarse thing like satellites, which measure you know, land disturbance. That gives you no indication of the quality of the biodiversity that's there. So you, know, you need boots on the ground. I mean, and, and you need boots on the ground all through during the years to, to look at what is there at various times. There's certain threatened species that only pop up for a few months um, in every five years rain cycle, you know, because yeah, you need a certain set of conditions and then they're there very transiently um, measuring animals and insects on farms is very difficult uh, because again, and birds, especially being migratory. So do you then work it on just plants or do you work it on the whole flora and faunal questions? There are so many questions that need to be answered and, and so much resourcing needs to go into just benchmarking things. I mean, you look at the EPBC maps right now about where koalas might be and it's a giant blur over the whole country. But I know on my farm, koalas live on that line of trees. For one reason or another, they avoid that line of trees. Now, there's no way a satellite can tell you that kind of information. Um, it needs boots on the ground. I mean, that's what we've done with LLS, but... As I said, a lot of farmers would be very hesitant to have that sort of information. Well, I think most so people yeah, most people tend problem. to be a bit dubious about government uh, holding data. We've seen that recently with that. Uh, is it My Health? The exactly. the uh, government database holding all of your health details from uh, sort of basically anything that you've had with, with any sort of healthcare issues, so that it can be used by multiple stakeholders, and it's obviously. You know, it was an idea from the government to let the with with with, with great intentions, but 
you know, great intentions quite often tend uh, to go go, you know, in a poor direction. I think, and I think that's the point. Is as he and here's one thing though. Let's remember. So we had the thirty million dollar biodiversity pilot announced before the federal election. Since then, um, the National Farmers Federation has been awarded a natural capital um, program funding. I think it's about four million dollars. Looking in the at, at the Department of Ag's website. They've got $4 million. Now, what they're going to be doing with that, and I'll just read out these five dot points. Um, they are going to create government recognition on the needs for a natural capital policy. They're going to create or d- develop a process for valuing these biophysical assets and the ecosystem services. So as we've been talking, dot number point number two is a pretty tricky one. Um, third, they've got to develop a process to publicly monetize biophysical assets and ecosystem services. And that's going to be really tricky. I mean, uh, there's, there's a few things there, but I mean, just one. Recently, this week, we've seen the, um, the increase in minimum, um, minimum wages. I was discussing this. Uh, the highest level in the world. Well, exactly. We have the highest minimum wage, most ecosystem work, uh, most weed spraying, pest removal, fencing, sowing of new, you know, planting of new um, revegetation areas, all that sort of stuff mostly is done on minimum wage. Um, well, so if, you, if, you if, part, if you're lucky, no, there's not many people in yeah. areas that's managed to pay somebody minimum wage for a long time. Yeah, true, true. But look, let's say you're a, a foreign uh, company that wishes to demonstrate your, uh, your commitment to the environment and you want to park $10 million of, of your shareholders' funds in somewhere where will return uh, the best possible uh, ecological service improvement. Um, let's say that company trying to demonstrate its, its, its goodwill and its, uh, its commitment to the environment does that. Let's say it looks around the world um, and you, you compare Borneo to Australia and are you going to put that, that fund into, you know, revegetating orangutan habitats or revegetating koala habitats if you're paying some of these insane wages that we have in Australia, plus all the other costs, you know, massive costs, uh, cost issues that we have in, in ag management, you're going to find a better return on investment in other areas of the world. So it's in a strange way, this ecologist of all people was, was, was explaining to me how they were, where we are essentially putting ourselves out of global markets on this sort of stuff. So that's a big question there. Um, is the profitability of our farm sector or our mining sector, who could also be chipping into this program, and like I said, in New South Wales, they actually are already doing it via a BCT, um, you know, uh, is that going to be enough to keep that market afloat? But it, but it is, I guess the other thing as well is are there more low-hanging fruits in Congo, uh, Nigeria, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, yeah. where you can get be- better outcomes for a cheaper price? Because at the end of the day, and, you exactly. know, call me a cynic again, but although listed companies and large companies, they need to be seen to be doing something from an environmental point of view. If you can do an environmental thing at a lower dollar value, then overall that's still going to meet a lot of the targets. It doesn't have to be in Australia. Exactly. And 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 you can see a time in maybe 30 years where globally, because this is all happening globally. We've got to re- remember this is not something where the Australian debate is going to shift things. This is happening globally. It is going to be a reality and it should be. Um, so, you know, but look forward to 30 years when, um, you know, essentially we've got 
companies around the world that are looking at this sort of stuff and going, well, Australia is very competitive on agriculture, but not very competitive on ecosystem services. So we're not going to invest in the ecosystem services in, in that country because it's not as competitive as some of these other competitive nations. And, and that's part of turning ecosystem services into a business. You've got to remember, you know, we, we will, if not already are, looking at this in terms of a globally competitive framework. It's not just about Australia in isolation. And that is a key part of the federal government's priorities to make sure our systems interact with other international systems as they develop. Um, and that's the key to FF's point number four, which is this establishment of a private market because all of this stuff only works if the resources going in are significant enough. Um, and, and that, as, I, as we've been discussing, it's going to be very hard. And then, look, the final mechanism for all of this for NFF is, is developing a policy review to then inform future policy. And this is part of the problem that we've seen in the past. I mean, you know, throw over to climate responses. We, we, we saw recently a, a large um, investment uh, investor in Australian agriculture, a large corporate ag, uh, getting a huge loan from, um, from a federal government agency for carbon uh, practices. Um, now, personally, I think that in time when that review happens, the, the, that particular loan, it was $100 million, is going to be looked at as a terrible use of taxpayer money because essentially that large Australian agribusiness entity was, was being given money for doing exactly the sort of things that I, as a small, very small landholder, uh, a land manager, very small agribusiness, I've been doing exactly what they're being socialised to do. Um, that's just business. That's what we do every day. So the return on investment of that $100 million um, under, a, under a climate mitigation fund with, uh, you know, it was a loan that really I don't think will stand up to long-term public scrutiny. And there's been several agribusiness journalists that have written about that. Um, I think, I think the, that's, that's one to as the, uh, keep your eyes unfolded in that one, I believe. Yeah, well, and, and so, you know, if you don't review these things and see how efficacious the use of funds were, um, you know, you, you, you're going to rapidly lose public voter and consumer interest in these things. And they'll say, no, 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 look, we'll just go back to the old ways. We'll lock up the country. We'll keep farmers out of it. And if we don't see it as good value for money for our hard-earned taxes, you can bugger off because, you know, the majority of Australians in our highly urbanised demographics can quite happily ignore and cost shift back to agriculture. So it's, it's actually a really... It's a really dangerous time in that sort of context because if we don't get these systems right and have really strong engagement into NFF as they develop these systems and then really strong engagement through the agribusiness community into the federal government as they develop these big pilot programs, if we get it wrong, uh, I, don't, I don't see us having another shot at this for another generation. Um, so we'll have another 25 years and maybe that's another trillion dollars in you know, essentially Australian agriculture subsidising the rest of the community. Um, so there's some, there's some big states. We have to get it right now and we really need the best agribusiness minds as well as the best policy minds, as well as the best environmentalists all looking at this. Uh, that's certainly not me. There's, there's, there's far better minds looking at this stuff. But, um, you know, unfortunately, if we don't have this really high level of engagement and we get it wrong, the community will just look at it and go, no. Nah, that was bad value for money. We'll just go back to cost shifting onto agriculture and you can sort off. So, 
yeah, we, we do face a really real risk of that at the moment. So going back to it, you had mentioned um, that there was on, the, I guess, the, the spectrum of where money should be or where viewpoints are as to how money should be going. You had mentioned that there was some who were calling for agriculture as, I guess, more environmentalists saying that agriculture is a net, uh, uh, should be paying effectively uh, for the use of, of the land effectively for environmentalism because they net, uh, are, are a net negative towards the environment. So that's, that's a, a, like a, you know, a lot of, a lot of farmers would not be impressed with that kind of sentiment from, from many. And uh, that's showing, I guess, a certain viewpoint that's within the industry or within the the conversation around uh, environmentalism and, and climate change. How do you think, you know, the lobby groups, you know, your state farming organisations, your uh, NFF, you know, how do you think the conversation is going? Because in the past, from what I'm, from what I'm led to believe is that for a long time, uh, they're basically from the outside looking in on the conversation. But do you think that's changed with, you know, in, in recent years? Um, what, what do you think the go is? It's, look, it's really hard to quantify, mate. I mean, look, you know, New South Wales, I was involved you know, in an ad campaign that New South Wales farmers held um, a few years ago that did help initiate some ma- you know, major review of, of New South Wales legislation and we got some really positive and productive changes out of that. The new laws as they stand today are better than they have been at any time in the last 25 years. And I think both from a farmer point of view and from uh, an environmentalist point of view, because it's actually enhancing the ability for environmental, uh, well, environmental assets. And I would use that term in a garden, guarded way because in some cases, they're still environmental assets while they're liabilities to farmers. But these environmental assets are being protected better now than they have, in my view, in the last 25 years. So there was a net win. There was a win for the environment. There was a win for farmers and no, we are we are seeing progress. You know, South Wales farmers, I think, did a pretty good job. At it. They spent an enormous amount of their own vote on that one issue, on that one campaign, and they can't do that every single year. So we do need to look at our general resource on communication, sort of an everyday that we, we, we have on Twitter. But um, I, I guess ultimately this comes down to the science. I mean, you have state... Uh, state of the environment reports that come out at a certain interval. You've got the federal government's state of the environment reports. And one of the things that a lot of ecologists are really acknowledging is that A, active land management is required for optimising biodiversity, and B, the quantity of areas that are conserved in this sort of a lock-up-and-leave approach is far less important than the way you do the systems planning. So um, if, you, if you just measure how many hectares are locked up, um, you're not getting a, a net improvement of biodiversity. I think we actually have an ally in the majority of the ecologists and envi- environmental groups and even in the Greens, and I know that's going to be controversial amongst agricultural communities, but I've got to be honest, the Greens are the ones talking about putting the most federal and state government money into these incentives for agriculture, both for compensation and for incentives to do more. So... I think we have to get out of this nonsense mindset 
of the Nats are for farmers and the Greens are against farmers because on this stuff, the Greens are the ones who are pushing for the greatest increases in funding because they are acknowledging the ecosystem science, right? And the ecosystem science is increasingly clear that you don't lock it up. You, yes, restrict based on priorities, based on those threatened ecological communities and threatened species lists. And you prioritise that and you pay the landowner. Remember, agriculture is 51% of the area of the continent. So, you know, we're the number one stakeholder here. You pay the landholder to get on with the job of doing that conservation activity. And that is the best way of doing it, both in terms of return on investment and also in terms of the actual outcome. So I think we're sort of seeing this thing where potentially in 20 years' time, we might be seeing the Nats and the Greens um, pushing very hard on this issue and getting more and more federal funds, um, you know, and almost in a, in a regional versus city style thing, because ultimately we, 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 we see more and more convergence between what farmers want and see and need and what some of the traditional enemies of agriculture and the, the greens and environmental groups are talking about. So, I mean, look, acknowledge there is a convergence of policy options coming forward there. Um, and, and we kind of need to. I mean, let's be honest. The environment is going downhill at a pretty rapid rate. There was that IPBS report um, earlier in the year, but that just fits in with every one of those state of the environment reports from every state and territory and the federal government. Very clearly, things need to change. And that's one of the big things that consumers and voters really need to acknowledge is that this 25-year legacy of just let's restrict farmers, farmers can pay for it, they'll be right, it's absolute bullshit. You know, I do not do any ecological work right now because I'm way too broke. There's no way my business could survive spending 60 or 80 grand on environmental or natural capital improvement activities. Now, in good years... You've got to be out of the red to be green. You've got to be in the... Yeah, exactly. You can't be green when you're in the red. Very simple, very simple argument. And, you know, I think consumers and the urbanised Australian public have a very big wake-up call. So that comes back to your original question. How are the state farmer organisations and the ag advocacy groups doing? Well, if we can unite and share a message and share some programs and policies and priorities with our, you know, and I'm, I'm using the uh, inverted commas here, traditional enemy of green groups, um, then agriculture and green lobby together has that ability to convince urbanised member of the Joe public that we can uh, we can do a good job, give us the money, and you have to give us the money because otherwise environmental outcomes will go down. It's that simple. Unless we unite with those those other groups and 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 together push these issues forward. So you reckon uh, then, you reckon in the next election we could have a Nationals Green coalition? Oh, look, I don't think we're talking <laughs> short term, mate. Let's be honest. Uh, let's be cynical and realistic here. I'm not talking about the next election, but I'm talking about as that longer-term conversation keeps happening. Um, and I'll tell you, it's interesting. Like I said, I was, I was speaking to a, uh, a pretty conservative, pretty hardcore farming kind of guy, and he had been reading a document, which at the time he didn't realise until he scrolled right back up to the top, but he'd, he'd been Googling this stuff. And he said that I was sitting there nodding my head at what these fellows were talking about. And then I realized it was the bloody greens. And I thought, well, there you go. There's, there's a case in point. If you couldn't see the banner at the top of the, the article, you'd, you know, a lot of farmers would nod their heads and say, yeah, no, that's equitable. That's fair. That's good. 
I could do something with that kind of a program or that kind of money. And then it's just a matter of getting over our, uh, you know, cultural aversion to some of these, some of these groups. That said though, I mean, it's not about jumping into bed with them and it's going to be beholden on members of the state farmer organizations, members of the commodity groups via our grassroots membership to make sure that, you know, the, the senior people in this debate, the NFF, you know, don't sell us out. Because we have seen in, in the past some farmer representative groups have sold out farmers to sort of placate some of these other voices. So I'm not, it's not all peace, love and mung beans. We still need a very strong, unified ag voice and ag lobby to push to make sure that farmers don't get screwed over again. Sorry for the language there, but that's the only way of saying it. We have been. It's okay, I can, I can blip you out. Leave me out, leave me out. We, we have. For the last 25 years, we have been, you know, we've been shafted. So we need a very strong advocacy voice that's doing it in a very smart way to avoid that happening for the next 25 years and another generation of farmers having that sort of impact on their profitability. Right. Well, I think that kind of covers a lot of it today. And I think it's interesting that you, you ended off with a bit about having a strong advocacy and strong lobby um, environment for, for farming in, in general, because that, that's something that actually, I was just thinking that it seems to come up at the end of almost all of the podcasts we talk about and that advocacy is important. So it, clearly you're not the only one that thinks that. And that's, you know, of various different things we've discussed over the over the series. So that's, that's interesting that you've came to the same ending almost. So... I guess we'll probably call it a close there. And I thought, like, I think it was really interesting what what you said there. I'm still sceptical of who pays for it or whether this, the appetite, uh, you know, really to pay for it, especially in the, the current climate, especially when, you know, there's been a big focus on reducing taxes as opposed to increasing taxes. So the money has to come from, from somewhere. But I think, you know, it is interesting. And I think, you know, it's, it's we're not talking about anything that's really all that far removed from, say, you know, the, the cap reforms in, in Europe and the UK. So it's not completely out with the realms of 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 reality. Uh, but, you know, it takes a lot of change. And like you say, who knows what's around the corner? You know, it's, but it is very, very, very interesting. And one, one last question, you know, you know, I, I talked a lot of the time with people who are not in agriculture or people who are in agribusiness but not from the farm or from rural communities. Do you think the average farmer believes climate change is, is real or or man-made? Uh, okay, climate change attitudes amongst farmers will depend on demographics. It's an, e- um, it's an easy one for you to answer just at the end, you know, leave you with, it, yeah, leave you with a hard thanks. one. Just toss that in, yeah, yeah. Um, it depends on demographics. It depends on um, scientific literacy. Uh, it depends on attitudes. Um, and you know what? I don't care. I've got to be honest. If you, Let's use this example. Let's say you've, um, you've got a, a child who is ill and you don't know what's wrong with them. So you go to a GP and then they give you a referral to an oncologist and because they suspect it may be uh, a cancer. You, you then take your child to um, another eight oncologists. So now you've seen nine GPs and they all confirm, look, we have a, a life-threatening disease. 
we can cure it. There'll be a major change to your to your lifestyle, you know, and your, your child's going to be having to go into chemo and surgery, and you know, uh, it's it's going to radically change your life. Uh, but we can act, and we can we can fix this, and we can you know we have a good potential diagnosis if if we do all these actions. So you've seen nine GPs or medical professionals have told you that, and then you see a tenth, and the tenth tells you because they're a GP who's into naturopathy or something like that. That hey, listen, no, it's fine. What we'll do is we'll give you some carrot juice. Firstly, no, it's not cancer, uh, and secondly, even if it was cancer, all those other cures won't fix you. Um, and so, look, what you need to do is to have some fruit juice and some uh, vegetable juice, and just live your life out normally and ignore it. Okay. So, That's... any parent with any ethics is going to listen to the nine. And while it's a very human reaction for us all to want to jump onto that hope of the tense that's selling you nonsense and saying it's not cancer or even if it was cancer, there's nothing we can do about it. Okay, that's no responsible parent could listen to that tense doctor. You would listen to the nine and you would take their advice and you would do the hard yards that are required and you would save your child's life. If you look at cancer and say, well, look, global emissions, that's our planetary system. That's the impact on agriculture. Are we going to listen to the nine or are we going to listen to that one quack? Okay. Well, I so think Oscar... Reality is important. Yeah. I think, Oscar, that's probably the most interesting uh, sort of analogy for climate change I think I've ever had. Uh, so I'll give, you, I'll give you a bit of kudos for that one. Uh, I'll, I'll, I've got to admit, I stole that one off Peter Mailer, who presented at the Australian Farm Institute and uh, pretty much ran that example. Uh, you didn't have to so tell us that. You, you could have just I'm kept not, it for your own. <laughs> I'm not an original thinker, mate, but that, that, that is a very real argument. So, I mean, look, I know we all want to go, look, we can carry on farming the way we have for the last 50 years or 100 years. We can carry on and we'll ignore it. It's not going to make a difference. But, you know, the, the important thing to remember is the whole agribusiness, our finance, our risk propensities, um, the, the, the investment that companies are making in technology and services, it's not just, you know, what a farmer thinks about. That's why I said I don't care because the reality is very clear. The scientific community and, um, you know, experts in agricultural research and climate research are telling us a very clear set of things. Agribusiness investors and, and the people that make our, you know, off-farm gate world work are also looking at this. Um, and capital and risk and return on capital are all being affected by this. And it's happening today, and it's going to be happening more so. So again, we have to take look at this in terms of the business um, and in any other market. And if, if everybody who has veracity is telling you the same thing, and a small proportion of people with very little veracity or very little influence in the business of agriculture are telling you it's okay, uh, don't worry about it, you know... <laughs> Make a judgment call based on that. So, thanks, Oscar. I think that sums it all up. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. And it's very thanks, interesting. And uh, I hope listeners have learned something and got an insight into into your viewpoints and and some of the you know some of the things that you probably you're probably not going to read about all that much about that in the, in the in the newspapers. But it's good to get a good expanded viewpoint on on your thoughts and I'd love to get you back on again at some point in the future and, and have a further chat on it. Maybe we'll see, uh, see what the uh, new policies come out from, from the new F, from NFF. Well, that was a very interesting talk with Oscar. I learned a lot of things I'd never knew before or hadn't really thought about. 
And I think it's the whole climate change thing is quite interesting because it's it's quite polarizing, and uh, there seems to be a lot of people who are ardently opposed to it, and and likewise uh, sort of evangelical on the opposite side about uh, the whole thing. But I think that's you know he's he's Oscar's very reasoned in his approach to it, and, and that was very interesting. So if you've got any comments about what you've heard today, you know, jump on Twitter and have have a chat about it. Uh, let us know what you thought. If if you have an opposing view towards your know, climate change, well, yeah, come on, let's have a have a chat. It would be quite interesting to see uh, divergent views on on all sorts of topics. Uh, as always, we only ask one thing from you. Uh, please jump on uh, on your podcast provider, leave us a comment, a review, or give us a a rating. Obviously, make it a good one, mate, because uh, you're getting this for free. Uh, But yeah, thanks very much. Uh, Have a good day.